sorry. Amen. <clears throat> so when I was a child, my brothers and I would take advantage of the winter months. After six o'clock, the sun is down, and the house that we had growing up in Richmond, Virginia, was a long ranch house that could be basically uh, portioned off, if you will. A couple of doors could close from one room to another, and one side of the house could be given over to more or less what we wanted to do. Well, in the winter months, when it's dark outside, you young people will appreciate this, what we loved is playing hide-and-go-seek. Mom's in the kitchen, or Dad's in the family room, or they're doing something on that end of the house, and we could close off all of the light from there, and then turn off every light in the rest of the house. There are three bedrooms, a living room, a bathroom, and we just enjoyed scaring the tar out of each other uh, down in that dark end of the house. As we got better at the game, uh, a brother would come into a room and you had found a stealthy spot to hide, and the brother would circle the room thinking he caught everything and leave, and then after he left, You could scamper out of that room into another room that he had already searched, into another place that he had already searched, and you just hid yourself the whole time. Um, It was a fun game that we played, and we do it even with our kids sometimes too. My youngest son recently discovered a place, the dirty clothes hamper, and uh, said, bro, not a good place to be. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like God is hiding from us, but it's not a game. As a small child, when you ran into your house after skinning up your knee, maybe you fell off your bike, tripped on the sidewalk, accident on the skateboard, the last thing you wanted was for your mom to be playing a game of hide and seek on you. You wanted her help. You needed her help. And you expected her to meet you at the door when you walked in uh, to help you out with that throbbing knee, to clean up the blood that's dripping down your shin. Only a cruel mom would hear the cries of her child and then move to a secret spot in the house where she couldn't be found. Um, What's happening in this psalm is David is hurting. David is struggling because the enemy is present and beating him up, but it seems as though God has stepped back, moved to another place, hiding from David, In this moment, the psalm is broken up into two sections, verses 1 through 11, which we'll cover first. And point one of the psalm is simply this, the discouragement of a distant God when facing a devious enemy. The discouragement of a distant God when facing a devious enemy. Now, verse 1 sets up this section. We get a window into the heart of David when he verbalizes this question in verse 1 where he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There are times in life when God seems to be so far away. Instead of being present, waiting for you at the door when you're rushing in, needing his help, it seems as though he has moved to another place, even hidden himself in another location. You remember when Saul hid himself among the bags when he was supposed to step up as a king and take on his responsibility? Don't hide, step up. This last week I was 
helping a few guys here move a friend up in Muskegon Heights, and we were in this little shed in the back clearing out shelves, and it's dark, and it's cluttered, it's full of just all kinds of stuff, and I turned to the left to pick up the next thing, and this box, and up pops a mouse head looking right at me. He sees me, and he's like, I'm out of here, and he scampers back away down into some sort of dark cubbyhole. It's like God is hiding. It's like you've shown up, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but God is hiding in this moment. And David takes it one step further, not just saying, here's what I feel like, God, you're standing far away, but he frames it within the context of a question, like, why? Why at this moment are you hiding? You're supposed to be the one who cares for me. Is it something that I've done? Have I disappointed you? Why are you hiding right now? I thought you were supposed to be the one who is my refuge, my fortress, my stronghold. We covered that in earlier Psalms. God even has a name called Jehovah Nissi, which means the God who protects or the God who guards me, the God who is my refuge. Why would you be so distant from me at this point? I'm in trouble. Chaos is swirling out there. There's a clear lack of peace right now in my life. And I know that many of you have been there. You can say, yes, I feel what David is saying in verse 1. From how Psalm 10 is written, it appears as though it could be a continuation from Psalm 9. We covered that last week. The cities around the nation of Israel are pressing in. David is the king, and it looks like he's toast. So if that's what's going on, David is looking at these enemies that are bigger, stronger than him, and now he's crying out to God who is bigger than them, but God is nowhere to be seen. And so after asking the question, he goes from speaking of a distant God in verse 1 to now speaking of a devious enemy here. And what he's doing is he's pouring out his heart like, God, you're not here, um, you're distant, but here's what's going on in front of me. <clears throat> and there are four characteristics that we see as we just walk through these next few verses. The first characteristic that you see about this devious enemy is simply his arrogance and pride. His arrogance and pride. In verses two through four, you see this language. Verse two says, in arrogance, the wicked pursues the poor. In verse 3, you see the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. In verse 4, he says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. This pride and arrogance is just adding to David's dilemma here. And the question is, even right now in this moment, okay, David is like in this cage, in this pit, being, being surrounded by his enemy here, and you see the enemy pressing in, and one question could be, what in the world is causing this enemy to be so wicked, to be so prideful? What drives a person to treat people who are made in the image of God with such contempt? And you really get to the bottom of the wicked man's heart as you see the quotes that David attributes to this enemy. It gives us a little bit more insight into the arrogance and pride of this enemy. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him. Look what his thoughts are. All his thoughts are, there is no God. 
In verse 6, you see the wicked man saying in his heart, another quote, and if you're into marking up your Bible, I've marked all these in my Bible. The wicked man says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. He thinks, he thinks he's strong. He thinks that he can conquer any kind of adversity. He looks to himself for solutions. In verse 11, again in your ESV, it says that from his heart, he is saying, God has forgotten. The NIV translates it this way in verse 11. It says, God will never notice. God covers his face and never sees. As though he's kind of taunting God right now. And then verse 13, there's one more comment from this wicked person. The wicked person says in his heart, God, you will not call me into account. God, you're not going to judge me. I'm going to be able to get away from this. So from the very bottom of this individual's heart, the wicked person who is pressing in on David, here's what you see. He has a very low view of God. Practically speaking, we could say he's an atheist. At times, he acknowledges the existence of God like God never sees. He's there, but he's just got his hands over his eyes. But practically speaking, he's functioning as an atheist. I'm my own man. No one has authority over me. I won't be noticed by God, and I'm not going to be judged by God. I don't have to stand before him. He's living as though God doesn't exist. Now, this is the wicked person. And to add to the discouragement of the bad guy winning is now a nagging thought that can be in your mind at times. Are they right? Are the boasts, are the quotes of this wicked man, are they right? Am I wrong? Did I grow up in a truly sheltered home where mom and dad just fed me this sort of Sunday school story so that I could sleep at night and not be afraid of death? It's the arrogance and the pride of the wicked and the silence of God right now that is just driving the knife deeper and deeper into David. And he's suffering. God, where are you right now? Second characteristic of the wicked is that they are prosperous. To add to the situation of pain, he says in verse 5, his ways, that is the ways of the wicked, he prospers at all times. And we know how this feels. It seems like every time you turn around, the wickedness of the world has progressed. There goes another law that is promoting sin. The agenda of wickedness has prospered once again. Or go, there goes that wicked person. The, my ex or that person in my life who, who left me in shambles, there goes that wicked person prospering. Why do the wicked prosper? It seems like they're untouchable and I'm left here to clean up the mess. God, the wicked people in my life are prospering. Third characteristic, verse 7. He's sinful with his mouth. Verse 7 says, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Basically, every time this guy opens up his mouth, you're just going to get lies. And those lies are leading people who are made in the image of God, David in this case, to a place of oppression, to suffering. In verses 8 through 10, you see the fourth characteristic. It's violence. You read phrases like this in verse 8. He sits in ambush, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. Verse 9, he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. Verse 10, the helpless are crushed. They sink down and they fall in his might. This guy, 
the wicked, they're just leaving devastation and ruin in their path. And again, most of you could say, I've been through that death-like experience. They did me wrong, and they got away with it. They robbed me of life. And some of you this morning are saying, it's not that that has happened in the past, it's happening to me right now. You've got no idea what I've been facing this past week. The bad guy is winning. And I've been crying out to God, God, where are you? Like, you are supposed to be my personal savior. Where are you during all of this? Again, we have to keep context here. Remember the enemy language last week from Psalm 9? When you see wickedness or enemy within the context of the Psalms, you have to be careful. You can't just impose it on a person or a situation strictly. The Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, meaning that the things we face are not merely physical, personal, personnel kind of issues. They can be personal. We live in a world that is influenced by Satan. And so Paul in Ephesians 6 is saying, okay, you're going through life and and you're just wrestling with things. But he's saying, you have to have a bigger perspective of the sin and the wickedness that you're wrestling with. It's not just on this human level. He says, you're wrestling against the schemes of the devil. So when wickedness seems to prevail, when the wave of sin just keeps coming and coming and crashing and eroding your life, this is, this is something bigger than just a human element. This is Satan at work, schemes, and like a, a broad net that is thrown out. Satan is aiming to cast his net out over the world And he hates life. He hates people who are made in the image of God. 1 John 5.19, we read this last week. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there is this warfare that is going on back and forth. And David feels the discouragement. Why, O Lord, why, Jehovah, the one who enters into covenant relationship with me, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when there's times of trouble? Now remember, we've learned something important about the Psalms up to this point. When the emotions of your soul are beat up like David and they resonate with what you read here in Psalm 10, it's okay for you to give voice to your soul in this way. It's okay for you to respectfully tell God, God, this is what I'm feeling. What David wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Psalm 10, this is what I'm feeling. I feel like you are far away. I feel like you are hiding yourself when trouble comes. It feels like you're leaving me in a dark and lonely place. Do you see what's going on here? It feels like you're nowhere to be seen. You've gone AWOL. It feels like that, God. It's okay for you to say these things in your heart to God. In fact, in his wisdom, it could be the first step that he uses to actually give you hope. Actually talking to God and opening up your heart and saying, God, To be honest with you, this is where I am. Transfer forward to 1 Peter 5, verse 7. What does God want us to cast upon him? Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So what you see in the psalm is permission to voice the emotions of your soul. But as is the case, if you continue to read the psalms, which we've been doing... 
God gives you a buoy to hold on to. So he meets you in the darkest of times where you're at, and he says, here, hold on to this. So the way that I've just pictured it in my mind is I've been dumped into Lake Michigan, and I've sunk 50 feet down into the water. The heaviness of the water is on me. The darkness of the water is on me. And I'm like, I'm done. This is it. I guess this is how I'm going out because nobody's here to rescue me. And then all of the sudden, something is put into your hand, and it's a buoy. And it just rifles you up to the top, and you pop out of the top of the water, and now you've got something that brought you up so that you can at least breathe. You're not out of the woods. You're still in the water, but you've got something that you can hold on to while you're in the water. That's what the Psalms is doing for us. This stinks, but man, I've got something to hold on to that will save me. Now, if David is in the worst of circumstances and God is saying, I give you something to give you hope, let's ask another question. If it was up to you and I, you and me, if we were to help somebody with their circumstances, we have to admit that we are prone, we are bent towards fixing people's circumstances by changing their scene, removing them from the circumstances. That's what we want to do. We see somebody hurting, and sometimes it's right to swoop in and say, okay, this is how I can love you, brother or sister. I'm going to move you out of those circumstances. But that's not what God often does in the Psalms. He sees you in the middle of your circumstances, and he doesn't swoop in and take you out of there. He calls your mind back to what you've heard and learned before. Even when you were in kindergarten, I call it kindergarten theology, the basics of who God is. He calls your mind back to what you've learned before and said, now do you really believe it? Do you really believe the simple truths about who I am? And as we believe those simple truths about who God is, he begins to change us. It's not so much that God is taking us out of our circumstances. If God always took us out of our circumstances, we would face the same thing the next time and we'd hit the button, teleport me, beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here. And we would be the same person the next week, next month, next year. We would never grow. And God is saying, no, 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 no. It's okay for you to be in the crucible of these circumstances right now. We're going to break you down a little bit, but you will be changed. You look at a doctor or nurse who's in the ER. They have somebody come in with a kind of a superficial wound, maybe a broken arm. And that doctor or nurse is like, okay, I can handle this. This is in my wheelhouse. The next patient comes in and this person has been bloodied up, knifed, holes all over the place, blood all over the place. The doctor or nurse might be like, this is outside of my wheelhouse. I'm going to the other ER on the other side of the hospital. Like, does that work? You say, no, 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 no. You, young doctor, young nurse, you got to buckle down. You learned a few things in med school. You have to focus on that, and you have to start applying what you learned to this patient here. Get your sutures out. Start putting things back in place. Get your hands dirty. Feel the warmth. It doesn't feel good. And after they get through that experience, they're like, oh, yeah, I learned, and now I'm, I'm, I know how to handle this a little bit better. I, I held on to what I learned, and 
what was taught to me. And that's what God is doing. So many times, folks, when we're in the midst of difficult circumstances, God isn't really teleporting so many of us out of there. What he's doing is saying, remember what you learned? Remember what I taught you? Remember these truths? So in verse 12, we go from the circumstances now to, there's a shift, you could say. In verse 12, look at how the language changes. Remember verse 1, God, where are you? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why do you stand so far away? Verse 12 Something is happening here. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. It's no longer, God, why are you standing so far away? It's like, okay, God, it's, it's game on. Here I come to you with my petitions. Here I come to you with my requests. I, I believe that you are good. I believe that you are refuge. I'm approaching you differently. And so in the second half of this psalm now, David is going to focus on what he has been taught, what's true about God. So point two in the sermon is simply this, three encouraging truths that God uses to buoy our souls. Three encouraging truths that God uses to buoy our souls. Look at verse 12. Again, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. That's a call to action right there. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Verse 14, look at the truth of God that's stated here. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. What do we see here? What encouraging truth about God do we see? Very simply, God sees. God sees. The atheist says, God doesn't see what I'm doing. I can get away with whatever I want. No one is going to bring me into account. And David says, no, God does see. Every situation that's going on, I know that God has his eyes on this. And he steps back and his attitude starts to change because he knows that God's got his eyes on his situation right now. Nearly every parent can appreciate this. You see two kids that are starting to squirmish and fight with one another. And typically what's going to happen is the older, stronger, bigger kid in the situation is going to win just because of their strength. And you see that younger sibling who is just getting crushed under the emotion of this. And you see there's, there's about ready to be a breakdown here with, with my younger one right here. Now what would be so cool? If that younger one who's just turning red, maybe he's got his arm back and is ready just to launch with one, last call here, I'm going out, I might as well go out swinging kind of thing. If all of a sudden that younger one just steps back from the situation and locks eyes with you. It's like, hey pops, you've seen it. It's all in your hands. I'm going on with life. That's what David is saying. Like, you see everything that's going on right now, God. I believe that that wicked person, now kids, your older sibling is not the wicked person, okay? In the psalm. David can say, God, I know you see this. He found hope when he realized that God does see everything that's taking place. 
Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord, they're running to and fro throughout the whole earth to do what? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And the idea here is, okay, I'm getting pummeled, I'm getting beaten, I feel like I'm getting crushed. Oh, no, wait a second. God, you see everything that's going on here. You're you're realizing everything that's taking place. And God, you do give strong support to those who are blameless. Does it mean that you're going to lift me up out of my immediate circumstance? It doesn't mean that. God might want to change you and strengthen you in that moment by keeping you there. And in verse 14, David says, I know that you see me. And what is the result or the purpose that God is seeing? Verse 14, it says that you may take it into your hands. So God, I'm, I'm realizing that you see my situation. And now I'm able to step back and say, okay, Father, it's in your hands. I'm done with this. Like, I, it's yours. You remember the story of Esther in the Old Testament? She had a cousin or uncle named Mordecai. And Mordecai ticked off a very powerful man named Haman to the point that Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. And Mordecai could really do nothing about it. He was just the little man in the story. Haman had all the power. But God saw the whole thing. And in his timing, God took this matter into his own hands And Haman died on the very gallows, the very structure that he was going to use to kill Mordecai. It seemed hopeless there for a season, but God was present the whole time, watching everything unfold and acting according to his wisdom and in his own timing. All right, so folks, God sees every form of wickedness that has happened in your life. Whether it was the hard things that you've never told anybody about or don't want to tell people about. The things that you just kind of try to compartmentalize and keep it in that area. God saw it all. And he will take these things into his hands in his own timing. You can be encouraged right now that whatever you're facing, God sees it. Second encouragement is this. God rules. You see it in verse 16 here. The Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations will perish from his hand. I love the statement, the absolute statement. The Lord is king. This is who he is. Psalm 47, verses 6 through 7 say this. Sing praises to the God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. So we look at the world and we wonder, hey, who's in charge of all this? We know that there is this spiritual warfare, but we keep going back to God is king above all of this. And notice that he wasn't just king or someday will be king. It's like he is king right now forever and ever, which means that everything that has happened up to this point Everything that is happening right now in your life and everything that is going to happen proceeding into the future, it's all under the rule and reign of God because the Lord is king. Nothing has happened for the first time in God's rule and reign. He's been around 
for all of humanity, he's seen the worst of times. And what's going on in your life, God's seen it. He's the king, and he's going to rule over it. And the result here in verse 16 is that the nations, the idea here, remember the surrounding nations around Jerusalem, that's the wicked people, they will perish from the land. God will take care of it in his timing. A third truth about God, verses 17 and 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. And you're going to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Just this third attribute is that God hears. Psalm 34, verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. And so the point that David is making is that God does hear the prayers of those who are afflicted. You're afflicted, God hears you. God is listening. He's not standing far away. He's not hiding in times of trouble. It feels like that, but here's the buoy. God hears. So what does that mean we should be doing? Well, it means we should be praying. When wickedness and sin has overtaken your children, God hears. Cry out to him. When sin and evil is threatening the institution that you lead, God hears. Cry out to him. When Satan is using greed or porn or some form of idolatry to ruin a family or a relationship, God hears, cry out to him. When you watch the news and you just see another, 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 how much more toxic news can I watch? God hears. So we pray. We follow our Savior. It's what he did when he faced circumstances in life. He cried out to his Father. He turned his attention to him because God hears. So what's the big idea for the sermon? Let's wind it down with this, and then we'll move into some application. God leads us out of discouragement by trusting that he sees, rules, and hears. Are you in a place of discouragement today? Are you at the bottom of the lake under the weight of these trials, and you're just like, okay, God, I'm suffering here. How do I move from where I am to where I should be in terms of my heart? And what we see here in this psalm is, okay, you may not find yourself removed from the circumstances, but your heart is going to move from focusing on the circumstances to focusing on who God is. And when you're focusing on who God is, the God who sees you right now the God who is ruling over everything that's taking place in your life, the God who hears your cry, you're like, okay, I'm not alone. God, you do care about me. And we thank him for that. Part of David's struggle was this thought that God does not really see, but we come back around to this truth. He's here. So let's think about this a little bit more broadly when we think about God seeing, ruling, hearing, being present in the moment. Verse 1, David's struggling with that thought, like, God, where are you? Well, as we look at God throughout Scripture, one of the pictures that you see is God is always dwelling with his people. 
God is a person who tabernacles himself in the midst of his people. All the way back to Genesis, you see he's created Adam and Eve and he doesn't remove himself, kind of like the deist, wind up the clock, step back and let it go. No, he's walking with them through life. Even when they sin and rebel against him, he meets them to cover themselves and, and meet their needs. As you continue throughout scripture, you see God very intentionally chooses to dwell among his people. He's not removed. Here comes the tabernacle. Here comes the temple. God, why do you stand so far off? The people could look to the tabernacle and temple, the holy of holies. There's the presence of God. You're there. And it doesn't stop with the tabernacle or temple. We know that God intentionally came to, choose, to dwell among us. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And what did the word do? He came and dwelt among us. He took on flesh. And so here is God in human flesh. Jesus saying, I'm coming. I'm here. And his presence here on earth was a reminder. Yes, you do love your people because Jesus was dealing with our sins in a very real way when he went to the cross and took the judgment that we deserved for our sins upon himself. He was here to love us and to take that judgment. God, where are you? Okay, I look to the cross. You're here. Jesus ascends. He's into heaven. But does he leave us alone? No, Acts 2. What does he send? He sends the Spirit of God to indwell those who are his. So right now, Romans 8, the Spirit of God is within you right now, sort of as a catalyst, helping you to affirm, God, you are my Abba Father. I can come to you with my needs. I believe in who you are. Has God left you alone? The answer is no, no, no. And then in the end, we see this fullness of God dwelling among us. So we look at Psalm 10 and we're like, man, I feel verse 1 sometimes. I really do feel verse 1. I'm like, God, why are you hiding? Why do you stand so far away? And then I hold on to this buoy that, God, you are the God who manifests and dwells with us and you will into eternity future. There will never be a time that I'm away from you. It moves me to the second thought of application. God is dwelling with us, but I want the truths of verses 12 through 18 to not just be information. Like, I didn't say anything new, I'm assuming, to most of you in this room this morning. I think from a very young age, down that hallway, our young people are hearing, yep, God sees. Yep, God is king. He rules. Yep. God hears me, that I can, I can pray to him. I want those truths to go from information to being like true conviction. Like when I face the wicked person and I feel like life is crumbling, I don't want them just to be nuggets of information. I want them to be like, yes, God, you are there. And God does that in our hearts. When we are in that, in that crucible, he's just crushing us, breaking us down, chip away at all the pride so that he can conform us into the image of his son. When we surrender ourselves and step back from the flesh, God says, okay, 
this truth about me seeing becomes a huge comfort. This truth about me ruling becomes a huge comfort. This truth about me hearing you becomes a huge comfort. And part of me goes like, how did that go from just information to being a huge comfort? How, how did that go from just that to this here, from here to here? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You were saved. Many of you were saved. Some of you in this room probably are not saved. When God saved you, he indwelt you with the Holy Spirit and gave you life within you. And he chooses now, with his spirit indwelling you, to take those truths that are found in verses 12 through 18, and at times, they become real. And you can't say, I did it. That's the thing about this Ephesians 2 thing. God made me alive, and now I have a heart that beats with the spirit of God, a spiritual heart, so that those truths are like, yes, I know them, and now I believe them. And now I'm going through just another day. I'm going to do it again because I believe that God sees, God rules, and God hears. It's not just words. It transforms the way. God, you got this one. God, you're ruling and reigning. God, you're hearing me. You got this one. God has done this in our heart, which just causes us to step back and say, all right, God, thank you. Thank you. I couldn't have conjured this up in my own heart. You are the one who has graciously enabled us to believe you. So we come to this table now. And this table is like the epitome of God's grace that causes us to believe. Through Christ, we have the Spirit. Through salvation, we have the Spirit. And so as we partake of these elements in a little bit, if you are a born again, if you have this new life inside of you by God, God's grace, you can handle these elements this morning and you can say, thank you, God, for bringing these truths to life in my heart. I'm going to live by them again this week. We're encouraged by God when we trust that he sees, he rules, and he hears. Let's pray. While we go to just silent prayer, those who are helping with communion, if you'll just come to the front and take a seat up here. While we're silently praying, if you see unrepentant sin in your life, will you just confess it to the Lord this morning? Perhaps you've been in that unrepentant sin because you haven't had a view of God. Perhaps you're just in the throes of spiritual warfare. Satan is casting his net, and a portion of his net fell on you. Even in this moment, can you thank God for what he's done for you through Jesus Christ, that you can trust that your heavenly Father sees, he rules, he hears you. Just take a moment to talk to God in the quietness of your heart, and I'll come back and pray.